Hi, and welcome back to SEPA Stories. And we are continuing our journey with Roland the Gunslinger, uh, written by Stephen King, and we're joining Roland across his across this desert and wasteland, I would assume, in pursuit of a man called the Man in Black. So um, the book is Stephen King's The Gunslinger. It is the first book in the Dark Tower series. I do not own characters for this book, and unfortunately I do not have permissions from the author to be reading this. However, I am um, reading and then offering commentary on what I think about this book. So um, if I'm at any point asked to remove these, I certainly will do so. So just letting you know. And I'm actually really excited about this next chapter. So just a quick recap. In our last reading, we had met, of course, Jake and Roland. And Roland has discovered Jake at a way station, um, kind of in the middle of the desert. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he um, has met Jake and he's pulled a story out of Jake about where he came from. And this was done, you know, with, with the hypnotism type of a trick. So the boy was able to explain that he had come from a city called New York, which Roland has no idea where or what New York is, but he gets the gist of the story. So he understands what's happening with the boy, um, even if he doesn't know where the boy has come from. So we have heard about the boy's story about how he was walking to school in New York City and it seems like his parents are pretty wealthy and are very much professional type people uh, to the point that they don't really spend time with Jake. So they're kind of absent parents. Uh, Jake is of course going to the finest schools and you know, he is doing, I'm assuming, will in school, but from what we have been told right now, it seems like the closest relationship he has in his home life is with the hired housekeeper or his housekeeper called Greta Shaw, who sometimes, you know, calls him Bama, and it's Miss Shaw that calls John Chambers Jake. So, you know, if, bo if the boy is called Jake, it's because Greta Shaw has nicknamed him that and he's the closest or she's actually the closest thing to a parental figure that he has and um, of course Miss Shaw is you know is very much um, not a mother he, you know she's just an employee though she does look after him there's not and she may feel affectionate about him she doesn't love him like, you know, he was her own child or anything like that. You know, she is very much the housekeeper and fills her role in that aspect. So I think Jake is a very lonely boy. And now having been thrown into the mix with Roland, you know, already we have read that he's starting to hero worship Roland and it kind of disturbs Roland in a, in a way. Um, he was our gunslinger. But in a way, too, Roland um, is also really starting to love the boy and, you know, like love him almost as a son figure or maybe a young apprentice. But he, I think, is starting to identify with the boy, you know, maybe comparing and contrasting his own childhood 
with what you know Jake has told him so we've we've already heard a little bit of Roland's childhood he's having these recollections and you can see the compare and contrast between Roland and Jake how they're both similar and dissimilar so uh, with that let's go ahead and dive into our next chapter in the book this is titled chapter 3 and it is the third chapter and it's called the Oracle in the mountains and this one just picks up right off the end of the last one there's no middle pages or skipped pages like we'd seen previously so um, I thought this layout was interesting in that aspect that maybe this is just the continuance after you know we've heard about Tull and Farmer Brown and, and all of that it seems like these chapters are now more chronologically happening and but there's like back and reflections back within the story so or within these chapters so it's I do like the movement of time uh, the pacing is working really well for me as a reader all right so with that um, the title page before our chapter says the Oracle and the mountains and there's a pen and ink drawing of a man holding up the jawbone which in our last listen uh, we heard that he Roland in looking for canned goods in the cellar of the way station uh, the wall opened up literally in the cellar and he punched his hand through and he took out a jawbone and so it looks like he's holding this jawbone up to either a sun or a moon I'm thinking moon um, in this kind of wood print little drawing and the only thing I don't like about the artwork is that they've drawn in his face and I think I mentioned this in my last recording I already have an idea and you probably do too of what this character looks like so I don't want to be given more information in that way I enjoy just kind of letting the picture unfold in my own mind so with that let's dive into this into this next chapter which is chapter 3 the Oracle in the mountains and we will begin now the boy found the Oracle and it almost destroyed him some thin instinct brought the gunslinger up from sleep to the velvet darkness which had fallen on them at dusk. That had been when Jake, when he and Jake reached the grassy, nearly level oasis above the first rise of the tumbled foothills. Even on the hard scrabble below, where they had toiled and fought for every foot in the killer sun, there they had been able to hear the sound of crickets rubbing their legs seductively together in the perpetual green of willow groves above them. The gunslinger remained calm in his mind, and the boy had kept up the least, the least of the pretense of a facade, and that had made the gunslinger proud. But Jake hadn't been able to hide the wildness in his eyes, which were white and starey, the eyes of a horse scenting water, and held back from bolting only by the tenuous chain of its master's mind, like a horse at the point where only understanding, not the spur, could hold it steady. The gunslinger could gauge the need in Jake by the madness the sounds of the crickets spread in his own body. His arms seemed to seek out shell to scrape on. His knees seemed to beg to be ripped in tiny, maddening, salty gashes. The sun trampled them all the way. Even when it had turned a swollen, feverish red with sunset, it shone perversely through the knife cut in the hills off to their left, blinding them and making every teardrop of sweat into a prism of pain. 
Then there was sawgrass, at first only yellow scrub, clinging with gruesome vitality to the bleak soil where the last of the runoff reached. Further up there was witchgrass, first sparse, then green and rank, then the sweet smell of real grass mixed with timothy and shaded by the first real dwarfed firs. There the gunslinger saw an arc of brown moving in the shadows. He drew and fired, and filled the rabbit all before Jake could begin to cry out his surprise. A moment later, he had reholstered the gun. Here, the gunslinger said. Up ahead, the grass deepened into a jungle of green willows that was shocking after the parched sterility of the endless hard pan. There would be a spring, perhaps several of them, and it would be even cooler, but it was better out here in the open. The boy had pushed every step he could push, and there might be sucker bats in the deeper shadows of the grove. The bats might break the boy's sleep, no matter how deep it was, and if there were vampires, neither of them might awaken, at least not in this world. The boy said, I'll get some wood. The gunslinger smiled. No, you won't. Sit yourself, Jake. Whose phrase had that been? Some woman. Susan? He couldn't remember. Time's the thief of memory. That one he knew. That one had been Vinay's. The boy sat, and when the gunslinger got back, Jake was asleep in the grass. A large praying mantis was performing ablations on the springy stem of the kid's cowlick. The gunslinger snorted laughter. The first in cuts knew how long, and set the fire, and went after water. The willow jungle was deeper than he had suspected, and confusing in the failing light, but he found a spring, richly guarded by frogs and peepers. He filled one of their water skins and paused. The sounds that filled the night awoke an uneasy sensuality in him, a feeling not even Allie, the woman he had bedded with in Tull, had been able to bring out. Too much of his time with Allie had been business. He chalked it up to the sudden, blinding change from the desert. After all those miles of bleak hard pan, the softness of the dark seemed nearly decadent. He reached to the camp and skinned the rabbit while the water boiled over the fire. Mixed with the last of their canned veg, the rabbit made an excellent stew. He woke Jake and watched him as he ate, blearily but ravenous. We stay here tomorrow, the gunslinger said. But that man you're after, the priest, he's no priest. And don't worry, he'll keep. How do you know that? The gunslinger could only shake his head. The intuition was strong in him, but it was not a good intuition. After the meal, he rinsed the cans from which they had eaten, marveling again at his own water extravagance. And when he turned around, Jake was fast asleep again. The gunslinger felt the now familiar rising and falling in his chest that could only he could only identify with Cuthbert. Cuthbert had been Roland's own age, but he had seemed so much younger. His cigarette drooped towards the grass, and he tossed it into the fire. He looked at it, the clear, yellow burn so different, so much cleaner from the way the double grass had burned. The air was wonderfully cool, and he laid down with his back to the fire. Far away, through the gash that led the way into the mountains, he heard the thick mouth of the perpetual thunder. He slept and dreamed. Susan Delgado, his beloved, was dying before his eyes. He watched, his arms held by two villagers on each side, his neck dog-caught in a huge rusty iron collar. This wasn't the way it had happened. 
he hadn't even been there. But trains had their own logic, didn't they? She was dying. He could smell her burning hair, could hear their cries of, Jar, you tree! And he could see the color of his own madness, Susan, lovely girl at the window, horseman's daughter. How she had flown across the drop, her shadow, that of horse and girl, merged, a fabulous creature out of an old story, something wild and free. And how they had flown together in the corn. Now they were flinging corn husks at her, and the husks caught fire even before they caught in her hair. Char, you tree! Char, you tree! they cried, those enemies of light and love. And somewhere the witch was cackling. Rhea, the witch's name had been, and Susan was turning black in the flames, her skin cracking open, and, and what was she calling? The boy! She was screaming. Roland! The boy! He whirled, pulling his captors with him. The collar ripped at his neck, and he heard the hitching, strangled sounds that were coming from his own throat. There was a sickest, sweet smell of barbecuing meat in the air. The boy was looking down at him from a window high above the funeral pyre, that same window where Susan had taught him how to be a man, had once sat and sung the old songs, Hey Jude, and Ease on Down the Road, and Careless Love. He looked out from the window like a statue of an alabaster saint in the cathedral. His eyes were marble. A spike had been driven through Jake's forehead. The gunslinger felt the strangling, ripping scream that signaled the beginning of his lunacy pull up from the bottom of his belly. Roland grunted a cry as he felt the fire singe him. He sat bolt upright in the dark, still feeling the dream of mages surround him, strangling him like the collar he'd worn. In his twistings and turnings, he had thrown one hand against the dying coals of the fire. He put the hand to his face, feeling the dream flee, leaving only the stark picture of Jake, plaster white, a saint for demons. Mm-hmm. He glanced around at the mystic darkness of the willow grove, both guns ready and out. His eyes were red loopholes in the last glow from the fire. <laughs> Jake! The gunslinger was up and on the run. A better circle of moon had risen, and he could follow the boy's track in the dew. He tracked under the first of the willows, splashed the spring, and laid it up the far bank, skinning in the dampness. Even now his body could relish it. Willows writhed, slapped him. Willows restrapped. Sp- <laughs> Willow's wreaths slapped at his face. The trees were thicker here, and the moon was blotted out. Tree trunks rose in the lurching shadows. The grass, now knee-high, caressed him, as if pleading with him to slow down, to enjoy the cool, to enjoy the life. Half-rotted, dead branches reached for his shins. His cojones, he paused for a moment, lifting his head and scenting at the air. A ghost of a breeze helped him. The boy did not smell good, of course. Neither of them did. The gunslinger's nostrils flared like those of an ape. The younger, lighter odor of the boy's sweat was faint, oily, unmistakable. He crashed over a deadfall of grass and bramble and downed branches, sprinted through a tunnel of overhanging willow and sumac. Moss struck his shoulders like flabby corpse hands. Some clung in sighing gray tendrils. 
He clawed through a last barricade of willows and came to a clearing that looked up at the stars and at the highest peak of the range, gleaming white at an impossible attitude. There was a ring of black standing stones which looked like some sort of surreal animal trap in the moonlight, and the center of it was a table of stone. In the center was a table of stone, an altar, very old, rising out of the ground on a thick arm of salt. The boy stood beside, stood before it, trembling back and forth. His hands shook at his sides, as if infused with static electricity. The gunslinger called his name sharply, and Jake responded with that inarticulate, inarticulate sound of negation. The faint smear of face, almost hidden by the boy's left shoulder, looked both terrified and exalted, and there was something else. The gunslinger stepped inside the ring, and Jake screamed, recoiling and throwing up his arms. Now his face could be seen clearly, and the gunslinger read fear and terror at war with some excruciating pleasure. The gunslinger felt it touch him, the spirit of the oracle, the succubus. His loins were suddenly filled with light, a light that was soft yet hard. He felt his head twisting, his tongue thickening, and becoming sensitive even to the spittle that coated it. He didn't think about what he was doing when he pulled the half-rotted jawbone from the pocket where he had carried it since he found it in the lair of the speaking demon at the way station. He didn't think, but it had never frightened him to operate on pure instinct. That had ever been the best and truest place for him. He held the jawbone's frozen prehistoric grin up before his eyes, holding his other arm out stiffly. First and last fingers poked, and the ancient fork signed the ward against the evil eye. The current sensuality was whipped away from him like a drape, Jake screamed. The gunslinger walked to him and held the jawbone in front of Jake's warring eyes. See this, Jake. See it very well. What came in response was a wet sound of agony, and the boy tried to pull his gaze away, could not. For a moment it seemed that he might be pulled apart mentally, if not physically. Then suddenly, both eyes rolled up to the whites. Jake collapsed. His body struck the earth limply, one hand almost touching the squat, the squat arm that held supported the altar. The gunslinger dropped to one knee and picked him up. He was amazingly light, as dehydrated as a November leaf from their long walk through the desert. Around him, Roland could feel the presence that dwelt in the circle of stones, worrying with a jealous anger. Its prize was being taken from it. Once the gunslinger passed out of the circle, the sense of frustrated jealousy faded quickly, and he carried Jake back to their camp. By the time they got there, the boy's twitching unconsciousness had become deep sleep. The gunslinger paused for a moment above the gray ruin of the fire, the moonlight on Jake's face reminding him again of a church saint, alabaster purity, all unknown. He hugged the kid and put a dry kiss on his cheek, knowing that he loved him. Well, maybe that wasn't quite right. Maybe the truth was, was that he'd loved him, loved the kid from the moment he'd seen him, as he had Susan Delgado, and it was only now and was only now allowing himself to recognize the fact, for it was a fact. It seemed that he could almost feel the laughter from the man in black someplace far above them. Jake, calling him. That was how the gunslinger awoke. 
He tied Jake firmly to one of the tough bushes that grew nearby, and the boy was hungry and upset. By the sun, it was almost 9.30. "'Why'd you tie me up?' Jake asked indignantly as the gunslinger loosened the thick knots in the blanket. "'I wasn't going to run away.' "'You did run away,' the gunslinger said, and the expression on Jake's face made him smile. "'I had to go out and get you. You were sleepwalking.' "'I was?' Jake looked at him suspiciously. "'I never did anything like that. The, "'The gunslinger suddenly produced the jawbone "'and held it in front of Jake's face. "'Jake flinched away from it, grimacing and raising his arm. "'See?' Jake nodded, bewildered. "'What happened?' "'We don't have time to blabber now. "'I have to go off for a while, "'and I may be gone the whole day, "'so listen to me, boy. It's important.' "'As sunset comes and I'm not back, "'fear flashed on Jake's face. "'You're leaving me?' "'The gunslinger only looked at him. "'No,' Jake said after a moment. "'I guess if you're going to leave me, "'you would have already have.' "'Ah, that's using your head. "'Now listen, and hear me very well. "'I want you to stay here while I'm gone, "'right here in camp. "'Don't stray, even if it seems like "'the best idea in the world, "'and if you feel strange, funny, in any way.' You pick up this bone, and you hold it in your hands. Hate and disgust crossed Jake's face, mixed with bewilderment. I couldn't. I, I just couldn't. You can. You may have to. Especially after midday. It's important. You may feel pukey or headachey when you first lay hold of it, but that'll pass. Do you understand? Yes. And will you do what I say? Yes, but why do you have to go away? Jake burst out. I just do. The gunslinger caught another fascinating glimpse of the steel that lay under the boy's surface, as enigmatic as the story he had told about coming from a city where the buildings were so tall they actually scraped the sky. But wasn't Cuthbert the boy reminded him so much of his other... It wasn't Cuthbert the boy reminded him so much of, so much as his other close friend Elaine. Elaine had been quiet in no way prone to Bert's grandstanding quackery, and he'd been dependable and afraid of nothing. All right, Jake said. The gunslinger laid the jawbone carefully on the ground next to the ruins of the fire, where it grinned up through the grass like some eroded fossil that had seen the light of day after a night of five thousand years. Jake wouldn't look at it. His face was pale, miserable. The gunslinger wondered if it would profit them for him to put the boy to sleep and question him then decided there would be little gain. He knew well enough that the spirit of the circle, Stone Circle, was surely a demon, and very likely an oracle as well, a demon with no shape, only a kind of uninformed sexual glare with the eye of prophecy. He wondered briefly if it might not be the soul of Sylvia Piston, the giant woman whose religious huckstering had led the final showdown in Tull. But no, not her. The stones in the circle were ancient. Sylvia Piston was a chilly come lately compared to the thing that made it stand here. It was old and sly. But the gunslinger knew the forms of speaking quite well and did not think the boy would have to use the jawbone mojo. The voice and mind of the oracle would be more than occupied with him. The gunslinger needed to know things in spite of the risk, and the risk was high. Yet for both Jake and himself, he needed desperately to know. The gunslinger opened his tobacco poke and pawed through it, pushing the dry strands of leaf aside until he came to a minuscule object wrapped in a fragment of white paper. 
He rolled it between fingers that would all too soon be gone and looked absently up at the sky. Then he unwrapped it, held the contents, a tiny white pill with edges that had been much worn with traveling in his hand. And I am pausing here. Um, I didn't make notice of this. This is a, a reader's insert. I didn't make notice or comment before um, I got to this part of the book or before we started reading. Um, quite honestly, I had forgotten these small details um, about this chapter. So um, there are, I'm giving a verbal warning now that there will be mature themes following and references to drug use. So keep that in mind. I'm not in any way promoting either, but it is a part of the story and fair warning. This is um, part of the story, but it is intended for adult or mature listeners only. Okay, continuing on. Jake looked at it curiously. What's that? The gunslinger uttered a short laugh. The story Court used to tell us was that the old gods pissed over the desert and made mescaline. Jake only looked puzzled. This is a drug, the gunslinger said, but not one that puts you to sleep. One that wakes you up, all the way for a little while. Like LSD, the boy agreed instantly, then looked puzzled. What's that? I don't know, Jake said. It just popped out. I think it came from, you know, before. The gunslinger nodded, but he was doubtful. He had never heard of Musculin referred to as LSD, not even in Martin's old books. Will it hurt you? Jake asked. It never has, the gunslinger said, conscious of the evasion. I don't like it. Never mind. The gunslinger squatted in front of the water skin, took a mouthful, and swallowed the pill. As always, he felt an immediate reaction in his mouth. It seemed overloaded with saliva, and he sat down before the dead fire. When does something happen to you? Jake asked. Not for a little while. Be quiet. So Jake was quiet, watching with open suspicion as the gunslinger went calmly about the ritual of cleaning his guns. He reholstered them and said, Your shirt, Jake. Take it off and give it to me. Jake pulled the faded shirt reluctantly over his head, revealing the skinny stack of his ribs, and gave it to Roland. The gunslinger produced a needle that had been threaded into a side seam of his jeans and a thread from an empty cartridge loop in his gun belt. He began to sew up a long rip in one of the sleeves of the boy's shirt. As he finished and handed the shirt back, he felt the mask beginning to take hold. There was a tightening in his stomach and a feeling that all the muscles in his body were being cranked up a notch. I have to go, he said, getting up. It's time. The boy half rose, his face a shadow of concern, and then he settled back. Be careful, he said. Please remember the jawbone, the gunslinger said. He put his hand on Jake's head as he went by and tousled the corn-colored hair. The gesture startled him into a short laugh. Excuse me. Jake watched after him with a troubled smile until he was gone into the willow jungle. All right, so another quick break. So we have now heard, um, of course, Roland is, is taking drugs and he's going back to the speaking ring and he has interrupted the oracle that was there or what he believes to be a demon from I guess having captured or entrapping Jake so there's questions he needs to know and 
he's going to go ask them. So let's see how this works out. The gunslinger walked deliberately towards the circle of stones. Pausing long enough to get a cold drink from the spring, he could see his own reflection in a tiny pool edged with moss and lily pads, and he looked at himself for a moment, fascinated as Narcissus. The mind reaction was beginning to settle in, slowing down his chain of thought by seeming to increase the connotations of every idea and every bit of sensory input. Things began to take on white thickness that had been heretofore invisible. He paused, getting to his feet again, and looked through the tangled snarl of willows. Sunlight slanted through in a golden dusty bar, and he watched the interplay of motes and tiny flying things for a bit before going on. The drug had often disturbed him. His ego was far too strong, or perhaps just too simple, to enjoy being eclipsed and peeled back made a target for more sensitive emotions. They tickled at him, sometimes maddened him, like the touch of a cat's whiskers. But this time he felt fairly calm, and that was good. He stepped into the clearing, walked straight into the circle. He stood, letting his mind run free. Yes, it was coming harder now, faster. The grass screamed green at him. It screamed that if he bent over and rubbed his hands in it, he would stand up with green paint all over his fingers and palms. He resisted a puckish urge to try the experiment. But there was no voice from the oracle, no stirring, sexual or otherwise. He went to the altar, stood beside it for a moment. Coherent thought now almost impossible. His teeth felt strange in his head, tiny tombstones sent sit in pink moist earth the world had too much the world held too much light he climbed up on the altar and lay back his mind was becoming a jungle full of strange thought plants that he had never seen or suspected before a willow jungle that had grown up around a mescaline spring the sky was water and he hung suspended over it the thought gave him a vertigo that seemed far away and unimportant an old line of poetry occurred to him. Not a nursery voice now, no. His mother had feared the drugs and the necessity of them, as she had feared court and the need for the sputer of boys. This verse, this verse came from the many folk to the north of the desert, a clan of them still living among machines that usually didn't work, and which sometimes ate the men when they did. The lines played again and again, reminding him, in an unconnected way that was typical of the mescaline rush, of snow falling on a globe he had once owned as a child, mystic and half-fantastical. Beyond the reach of human range, a drop of hell, a touch of strange. The trees which overhung the altered contained faces. He watched them with abstracted fascination. Here there was a dragon, green and twitching. Here a wood nymph with beckoning branch arms. Here a living skull, overgrown with slime. Faces, faces. The grasses of the clearing suddenly whipped and bent. I come, I come. Vague stirrings in his flesh. How far I have come, he thought. Lying with Susan, from lying with Susan, and the sweet grass on the drop to this. She pressed over him a body made of wind, a breast of fragrant jasmine, rose, and honeysuckle. Make your prophecy, he said. Tell me what I need to know. His mouth felt full of metal. 
A sigh, a faint sound of weeping. The gunslinger's genitals felt drawn in horror and hard. Above him, over him and beyond the faces and the leaves, he could see the mountains, hard and brutal and full of teeth. The body moved against him, struggled with him. He felt his hands curl into fists. She had sent him a vision of Susan. It was Susan above him, the lovely Susan Delgado, waiting for him in an abandoned drover's head on the drop, with her hair spilled down her back and over her shoulders. He tossed his head, but her face followed. Jasmine, rose honeysuckle, old hay, the smell of love left me. Speak prophecy, he said, speak truth. Please, the oracle wept, don't be cold. It's always so cold here. Hands slipping over his flesh, manipulating, lighting him on fire, pulling him, drawing a perfumed black crevasse, wet and warm. No, dry, cold, sterile. Have a touch of mercy, gunslinger. Oh, please, I cry for your favor. Mercy. Would you have mercy on the boy? What boy? I know no boy. It's not boys I need. Oh, please. Jasmine, rose, honeysuckle, dry hay with its ghost of summer clover, oil decanted from ancient urns, riot for the flesh. After, he said, if what you tell me is useful. Now, please, now. He let his mind coil out at her, the antithesis, antithesis, the antithesis of emotion. The body that hung over him froze and seemed to scream. There was a brief, vicious tug of war between his temples. His mind was the rope, gray and fibrous. For long moments there was no sound but the quiet hush of his breathing and the faint breeze which made the green faces in the trees shift, wink, and grimace. No bird sang. Her hold loosened. Again there was the sound of sobbing. It would have to be quick or she would leave him. To stay now meant attenuation, perhaps her own kind of death. Already he felt her chilling, drawing away to leave the circle of stones. Wind rippled the grass in tortured patterns. Prophecy, he said. And then, an even bleaker noun, truth. A weeping, tired sigh. He could have almost granted the mercy she begged, but there was Jake. And he would have found Jake dead or insane if he had been any later last night. Sleep then. No. Then have sleep. What she asked was dangerous, but also probably necessary. The gunslinger turned his eyes up to the faces and the leaves. A play was being enacted there for his amusement. Worlds rose and fell before him. Empires were built across shining sands, where forever machines toiled in abstract electronic frenzies. Empires declined, fell, rose again. Worlds that had spun like silent liquid moved more slowly, began to squeak, began to scream, stopped. Sand choked the stainless steel gutters of concentric streets below. Dark skies full of stars like beds of cold jewels, and through it all, a dying wind of change blew, bringing with it the cinnamon smell of late October. The gunslinger watched as the world moved on and half slept. Three. Three is the number of your fate. Three. Yes, three is mystic. Three stands at the heart of your quest. 
Another number comes later. Now, the number is three. Which three? Ah, we see in part, thus is the mirror of prophecy darkened. Tell me what you can. The first is young, dark-haired. He stands on the brink of robbery and murder. A demon has infested him. The demon, the name of the demon, is heroin. Which demon is that? I know it not, even from my tutor's lessons. We see in part, and thus is the mirror of prophecy darkened. There are other worlds, gunslinger, and other demons. These waters are deep. Watch for the doorways. Watch for the roses and unfound doors. The second. She comes on wheels. I see no more. The third. Death, but not for you. The man in black. Where is he? Near. You will speak with him soon. Of what will we speak? The tower. The boy. Jake. Tell me of the boy. The boy is your gate to the man in black. The man in black is your gate to the three. The three are your way to the dark tower. How? How can that be? Why must it be? We see in part, and thus is the mirror. God damn you. No. God damned me. Don't patronize me, thing. What shall I call you then, star slut, whore the winds? And he pushed her violently, falling to his knees. He made his drunken way to the perimeter of the circle. He staggered through, feeling the huge weight fall from his shoulders. He drew a shuddering. I'm so sorry. It looks like I have missed I've missed a page. Okay, let me finish that last sentence. I do apologize. All right. So we're doing... Okay. So this is Roland. Um, and we say, God damn you. No, God damned me. Don't patronize me, thing. What shall I call you then, star slut? Or the winds? Some live on love that comes to ancient places, even in these sad and evil times. Some gunslinger live on blood. Even I understand on the blood of young boys. May he not be spared. Yes. How? Cease, gunslinger. Strike your camp and turn back northwest. In the northwest there is still a need for men who live by the bullet. I am sworn by my father's guns and by the treachery of Martin. Martin is no more. The man in black has eaten his soul. This you know. I am sworn. Then you are damned. Have your way with me, bitch. Eagerness. The shadow swung over him, enfolded him. There was sudden ecstasy broken only by a galaxy of pain as faint and bright as ancient stars gone red with collapse. Faces came to him unbidden. At the climax of their coupling, Sylvia Pittston, Alice, the woman from Tull, Susan, a dozen others. And finally, after an eternity, he pushed her away from him. Once again, right, once again in his right mind, bone-weary and disgusted. 
No, it isn't enough yet. Let me be, the gunslinger said. He's dead. He sat up and almost fell off the altar before regaining his feet. She touched him tentatively. Honeysuckle, Jasmine, sweet at her. He pushed at her, violently falling to his knees. He made his drunken way to the promoter of the circle. He staggered through, feeling a huge weight fall from his shoulders. He drew a shuddering, weeping breath. He had learned enough to justify had he learned enough to justify this feeling of defilement. He didn't know. In time he supposed he would. As he started away, he could feel her standing at the bars of her prison, watching him go from her. He wondered how long it might be before someone else crossed the desert and found her hungry and alone, and for a moment he felt dwarfed by the possibilities of time. Okay, so I'm going to take a small break. I am so sorry for the stumbling that um, happened there. I'm trying to be really careful reading this. Um, so I don't have the best editing equipment yet, so these are pretty much um, full read-throughs as I'm starting these. So we're going to take a quick break, and I'll be right back. And again, thank you so much for taking this journey with me across the wasteland here with uh, Roland or on his adventure to find the Man in Black. So I'll see you shortly. Hi, and welcome back. Thank you for that little break. Um, so we are getting ready to continue on. Roland has now basically again traded his body and time to speak with um, a demon or a spirit called the Oracle that lives in a stone circle. So this demon thing is imprisoned there and had actually trapped Jake previously of course, Roland has rescued him, or did rescue him, and now has questions that he needs answered from the Oracle, which, you know, can um, provide prophecies. So he has just spent some time and is now making his way back to Jake, who he has left at the camp with the jawbone that he found at the way station. So we will continue on. You're sick. Jake stood up fast when the gunslinger shambled back through the last trees and came into camp. He had been huddled by the ruins of the tiny fire, the jawbone across his knees, gnawing disconsolately on the bones of the rabbit. Now he ran towards the gunslinger with a look of distress that made Roland feel full of the ugly weight of a coming betrayal. No, he said, not sick, just tired, whipped. He gestured absently at the jawbone. You can let go of that, Jake. The boy threw it down quickly and violently, rubbing his hands across his shirt after doing it. His upper lip rose and fell in a snarl that the gunslinger believed perfectly unconscious. The gunslinger sat down, almost fell down, feeling the aching joints and the pummeled, thick mind that was the unlovely afterglow of mescaline. His crotch also pulled, pulsed with a dull ache. He rolled a cigarette with careful, unthinking slowness. Jake watched. The gunslinger had a sudden impulse to speak to the boy, dunned in after telling him all he had learned, then thrust the idea away with horror. He wondered if a part of him, mind or soul, might not be disintegrating. To open one's mind and heart to the command of a child? The idea was insane. We sleep here tonight. Tomorrow we start climbing. I'll go out a little later and see if I can't shoot something for supper. 
We need to make strength. I've got to sleep now, okay? Sure, knock yourself out. I don't understand you. Do what you want. Huh, the gunslinger nodded and lay back. Knock myself out, he thought. Knock myself out. When he woke, the shadows were long across the small grass clearing. I pulled up the fire, he told Jake, and tossed him his foot and still. Can you use that? I think so. The gunslinger walked towards the willow grove and then stopped at the sound of the boy's voice. Stop dead. Spark dark, where's my sire? The boy murmured, and Roland heard the sharp click, click, click of the flint. It sounded like the cry of a small mechanical bird. Will I lay me? Will I stay me? Bless this camp with fire. Picked it up from me, the gunslinger thought, not in the least surprised to discover he was all over goosebumps and on the verge of shivering like a wet dog. Picked it up from me, words I don't even remember saying. And will I betray such? Ah, oh, Roland, will he betray such true thread as this in such a sad and threaded world? Could anything justify it? Tis just words. Aye, good ones, old ones. Roland, the boy called, are you all right? Yar, he said gruffly, and the tang of smoke stung faintly in his nose. These made fire. Yes, the boy said simply. Roland did not need to turn to know the boy was smiling. The gunslinger got moving and bore left, this time skirting the willow grove. At a place where the ground opened up and upward into heavy open grass, he stepped back into the shadows and stood silently. Faintly, clearly, he could hear the crackle of the campfire Jake had rekindled. The sound made him smile. He stood without moving for ten minutes. Fifteen, twenty, three rabbits came, and once they were at Silfle, the gunslinger pulled leather. He took them down, skinned them, gutted them, and brought them back to the camp. Jake had water. Jake had water already steaming over the low flames. The gunslinger nodded to him. That's a good piece of work. Jake flushed with pleasure and silently handed back the flint and steel. While the stew cooked, the gunslinger used the last of the light to go back into the willow grove. Near the first pool, he began to hack at the tough vines that grew near the water's marshy verge. Later, as the fire burned down to coals and Jake slept, he would plate them into ropes that might be of some limited use later. But his intuition was that the climb would not be a particularly difficult one. He felt caught at work on the surface of things and no longer even considered it odd. The vines bled sap over his hands as he carried them back to where Jake waited. They were up with the sun and packed in half an hour. The gunslinger hoped to shoot another rabbit in the meadow as they fed, but time was short and no rabbit showed itself. The bundle of the remaining food was now so small and light Jake carried it easily. He had toughened up this boy. You could see it. The gunslinger carried their water freshly drawn from one of the springs. He looped his three vines. He looped his three vine ropes around his belly. They gave the circles of stones a wide berth. The gunslinger was afraid the boy might feel a recurrence of fear, but when they passed above it on the stony rise, Jake offered only a passing glance, then looked at a bird that hovered upwind. Soon enough, the trees began to lose their height and lushness. Trunks were twisted and roots seemed to struggle with the earth in a tortured hunt for moisture. It's all so old, Jake said glummily when they paused for a rest. Isn't there anything young in this world? 
The gunslinger smiled, gave Jake an elbow. You are, he said. Jake responded with a wane smile. Will it be hard to climb? The gunslinger looked at him, curious. The mountains are high. Don't you think it'll be a hard climb? Jake looked back at him, his eyes clouded, puzzled. No. They went on. The sun climbed to its zenith, seemed to hang there more briefly than it had ever had during the desert crossing, and then passed on, returning them to their shadows. Shelves of rocks protruded from the rising lands like the arms of giant easy chairs buried in the earth. The scrub grass turned yellow and sere. Finally, they were faced with a deep chimney-like crevasse in their path, and they scaled a short peeling rise of rock to get around it and above. The ancient granite had vaulted on lines that were step-like, and, as they both intuited, the beginning of their climb at least was easy. They paused on the four-foot-wide scarp at the tarp and looked back over the land to the desert, which curled around the upland like a huge yellow paw. Further off, it gleamed at them in a white shield that dazzled the eyes, receding into dim waves of rising heat. The gunslinger felt faintly amazed at the realization that this desert had nearly murdered him. From where they stood, in a new coolness, the desert certainly appeared momentous, but not deadly. They turned back to the business of the climb, scrambling over jackstraw falls of rock and crouch-walking up inclined planes of stone shot with glitters of quartz and mica. The rock was pleasantly warm to the touch, but the air was definitely cooler. In the late afternoon, the gunslinger heard the faint sound of thunder. The rising line of the mountains obscured the sight of the rain on the other side, however. When the shadows began to turn purple, they camped in the overhang of a jutting brow of rock. The gunslinger anchored their blanket above and below, fashioning a kind of shanty lean-to. They sat at the mouth of it, watching the sky spread a cloak over the world. Jake dangled his feet over the top, over the drop. The gunslinger rolled his evening smoke and eyed Jake half-humorously. Don't roll over in your sleep, he said, or you might wake up in hell. I won't, Jake replied seriously. My mother says, he broke it off. She says what? Did I sleep like a dead man? Jake finished. He looked at the gunslinger, who saw the boy's mouth was trembling as he stove to keep back tears. Only a boy, he thought, and pain smote him, the ice pick that too much cold water can sometimes plant in the forehead. Only a boy, why? Silly question. When a boy, wounded in body or spirit, called that question out to court, that ancient scarred battle engine whose job it was to teach the sons of gunslingers the beginning of what they had to know, Courtwood answered, Why is a crooked, why is a crooked letter? It can't be made straight. Never mind why. Just get up, pusshead. Get up, the day's young. Why am I here? Jake asked. Why did I forget everything from before? Because the man in black has drawn you here, the gunslinger said. And because of the tower. The tower stands at a kind of power nexus in time. I don't understand that. Nor do I, the gunslinger said. But something has been happening, just in my own time. The world has moved on, we say. We've always said. But it's moving faster now. Something has happened to time. It's softening. They sat in silence. 
A breeze, faint but with an edge, picked at their legs. Somewhere it made a hollow in a rock fissure. Where do you come from? Jake asked. From a place that no longer exists. Do you know the Bible? Jesus and Moses, sure. The gunslinger smiled. That's right. My land had a biblical name. New Canaan, it was called. The land of milk and honey. In the Bible's Canaan, there were supposed to be grapes so big that man had to carry them on sledges. Uh, we didn't grow them that big, but the land was sweet. I know about Ulysses, Jake said hesitantly. Was he in the Bible? Maybe, the gunslinger said. I was never a scholar of it. He can't say for sure. But the others, your friends, know others, the gunslinger said. I'm the last. A tiny wasted moon began to rise, casting its slitted gaze down into the tumble of rocks where they sat. Was it pretty, your country, your land? It was beautiful, the gunslinger said. There were fields and forests and rivers and rivers and mists in the morning, but that's only pretty. My mother used to say the only real beauty is in order and love and light. Jake made a noncommittal noise. The gunslinger smoked and thought of how it had been. The nights in the huge central hall, hundreds of richly clad figures moving through the slow, steady waltz steps, or the faster light ripples of the polecum. A lean rudder on his arm, the one his parents had chosen for him, he supposed, her eyes brighter than the most precious gems, and the light, crystal-enclosed sparklights shining in the newly done hair of the courtesans and their half-cynical armors. The hall had been huge, an island of light, whose age was beyond telling, as was the whole central place, which was made up of nearly a hundred stone castles. It had been unknown years since he had seen it, leaving for the last time. Roland had ached as he turned his face away from it and began his first cast for the trail of the man in black. Even then the walls had fallen. Weeds grew in the courtyards, bats roosted among the great beams of the central hall, and the galleys echoed with the soft swoop and whispers of shallows, swallows. The fields where court had taught them archery and gunnery and falconry were gone to hang in Timothy and wild vines, and a huge kitchen where hacks had once held his fuming and aromatic court, the grotesque, a grotesque colony of slow mutants nested, peering at him from the merciful darkness of the pantries and shadowed pillars. The warm steam that had been filled with the pungent odors of roasting beef and pork had changed to the clammy damp of moss. White toadstools grew in corners, where not even the slow mutants dared to encamp. The huge, white, subcellar bulkhead stood open, and most poignant smell of all had issued from that, an odor that seemed to express with a flat finality all the hard facts of dissolution and decay the high, sharp odor of wine gone to vinegar. It had been no struggle to turn his face south and leave it behind, but it had hurt his heart. Was there a war? Jake asked. Even better, the gunslinger said, and pitched the last smoldering ember of his cigarette away. There was a revolution. We won every battle and lost the war. No one won the war, unless maybe it was the scavengers. There must have been rich pickings for years after. I wish I'd lived there, Jake said wistfully. Do you say so? I do. Time to turn in, Jake. 
The boy, now only a dim shadow, turned on his side and curled up with the blanket tossed loosely over him. The gunslinger sat sentinel over him for perhaps an hour, thinking his long, sober thoughts. Such meditation was a novel thing for him, sweet and melancholy in a melancholy sort of way, but still utterly without practical value. There was no solution to the problem of Jake other than the one the oracle had offered, and turning away was simply not possible. There might have been tragedy in the situation, but the gunslinger did not see it that way. He only saw predestination, that it had always been there. And finally, his more natural character reasserted itself, and he slept deeply with no dreams. The climb had become grimier the following day as they continued to angle towards the narrow V of the pass through the mountains. The gunslinger pushed slowly, still with no sense of hurry. The dead stone fell beneath their feet, left no trace of the man in black. But the gunslinger knew he had been this way before them, and not only from the path of his climb as he and Jake had observed him tiny and bug-like from the foothills, his aroma was printed on every cold downdraft of air. It was an oily, sardonic odor, as bitter to the nose as the stench of the double grass. Jake's hair had grown much longer, and it curled slightly at the base of his sunburned neck. He climbed, though, moving with sure-footedness and no apparent acrophobia as they crossed gaps and scaled their way up ledged facings. Twice already he'd gone up in places the gunslinger could not have managed and anchored one of the ropes so the gunslinger could climb up hand over hand. The following morning they climbed through a coldly damp snatch of cloud that blotted out the tumbled slopes below them. Patches of hard, granulated snow began to appear nestled in some of the deeper pockets of stone. It glittered like quartz, and its texture was as dry as sand. That afternoon they found a single footprint in one of those snow patches. Jake stirred at it for a moment with awful fascination, then looked up frightfully as if expecting to see the man in black materialize into his own footprint. The gunslinger tapped him on the shoulder and pointed ahead. Go, the day is getting old. Later they made camp in the last of the daylight on a wide flat ledge to the east and north of the cut that slanted into the heart of the mountains. The air was frigid. They could see the puffs of their breath, and the humid sound of thunder and the red and purple afterglow of the day was surreal, slightly lunatic. The gunslinger thought the boy might begin to question him, but there were no questions from Jake. The boy fell almost immediately into sleep. The gunslinger followed his example. He dreamed again of Jake as an alabaster saint with a nail through his forehead. He woke with a gasp, tasting the cold thinness of altitude in his lungs. Jake was asleep beside him, but his sleep was not easy. He twisted and mumbled to himself, chasing his own phantoms. The gunslinger lay over uneasily, slept again. A week after Jake saw the footstep, they faced the man in black for a brief moment in time. In that moment, the gunslinger felt he could almost understand the implication of the tower itself, for that moment seemed to stretch out forever. They continued southeast, reaching a point perhaps halfway through the Cyclopean mountain range, and just as the going seemed to become really difficult for the first time above them, seeming to lean out, the icy ledges and screaming boots made the gunslinger feel an unpleasant reverse vertigo. They began to descend again along the side, 
the narrow side pass. An angular zigzagging path led them toward a canyon floor where an ice-edged steam stream boiled with slaty headlong power from a higher country still. On that afternoon, the boy paused and looked back at the gunslinger who had paused to wash his face in the stream. I smell him, Jake said. So do I. Ahead of them, the mountain threw up its final defense, a huge slab of insurmountable granite facing that climbed into cloudy infinity. At any moment, the gunslinger expected to twist the mountain expected a twist in the mountain stream to bring them upon a high waterfall and insurmountable smoothness of rock dead end. But the air here had that odd magnifying quality that is common to high places, and it was another day before they reached that great granite face. The gunslinger began to feel the tug of anticipation again, the feeling that it was all finally in his grasp. He'd been through this many times before, but still had to fight himself to keep from breaking into an eager trot. Wait! The boy had stopped suddenly. They faced a sharp elbow bend in the stream. It boiled and frothed around the eroded hang of a giant sandstone boulder. All that morning they had been in the shadow of the mountains as the canyon, canyon narrowed. Jake was trembling violently and his face had gone pale. What's the matter? Let's go back. Jake whispered. Let's go back quick. The gunslinger's face was wooden. Please. The boy's face was drawn. His jawline shook with suppressed agony. Through the heavy blanket of stone, they heard still thunder, as steady as machines in the earth. The slice of the sky they could see had itself assumed a turbulent gothic gray above them, as of warm and current cold, as warm and, cur as warm and cold currents met and warred. Please, please, the boys raised a fist as if to strike the gunslinger's chest. No. The boy's face took on wonder. You're going to kill me. He killed me the first time, and you're going to kill me this time, and I think you know it. The gunslinger felt the lie on his lips, then spoke it. You'll be all right, and the greater lie yet. I'll take care. Jake's face went gray, and he said no more. He put an unwilling hand out, and he and the gunslinger went around the elbow bend that way, hand in hand. On the other side, they came face to face with that final rising wall and the man in black. He stood no more than twenty feet above them, just to the right of the waterfall that crashed and spilled from a huge ragged hole in the rock. Unseen wind rippled and tugged at his hooded robe. He held a staff in one hand. The other hand he held out to them in a mocking gesture of welcome. He seemed a prophet, and below the rushing sky mounted on the ledge of rock, a prophet of doom. His voice, the voice of Jeremiah. Gunslinger, how well you fulfill the prophecies of old. Good day, and good day, and good day. He laughed and bowed, the sound echoing over the bellow of the falling water. Without a thought, the gunslinger had drawn his pistols. The boy cowered to his right and behind, to his right and behind a small shadow. Roland fired three times before he could gain control of his traitor hands. The echoes bounced their bronze tones against the rock valley that rose around them over the sound of the wind and water. A spray of granite puffed over the head of the man in black. A second to the left of his hood, the third to the right. He had missed cleanly all three times. 
The man in black laughed, a full hearty laugh that seemed to challenge the receding echo of gunshots. Would you kill all your answers so easily, gunslinger? Come down, the gunslinger said. Do that, I beg you, and we'll have answers all around. Again, that huge derisive laugh. It's not your bullets I fear, Roland. It's your idea of answers. It scares me. Come down. We'll speak on the other side, I think, the man in black said. On the other side, we'll hold much counsel and long palaver. His eyes flicked to Jake, and he added, Just the two of us. Jake flinched away from him with a small whining cry, and the man in black turned, his robe swirling in the gray air like a bat wing. He disappeared into the cleft in the rock from which the water spewed at full force. The gunslinger exercised grim will not to send a bullet after him. Would you kill all your answers so easily, gunslinger? There was only the sound of wind and water, a sound that had been in this place of desolation for a thousand years. Yet the man in black had stood there. Twelve years after his last glimpse, Roland had seen him close up again, had spoken to him. The man and the man in black had laughed. On the other side, we will hold much counsel and long palaver. The boy looked up at him, his body trembling. For a moment, the gunslinger saw the face of Allie, the girl from Toll, superimposed over Jake's, the scar standing out on her forehead like a mute accusation, and felt a brute loathing for the, both of them. It wouldn't occur to him until much later that the, both the scar on Alice's forehead and the nail he saw spiked through Jake's forehead in his dreams were in the same place. Jake's perhaps caught a whiff of his thought, and a moan slipped from his throat. He twisted his lips and cut the sound off. He held the makings of a fine man, perhaps a gunslinger in his own right of given time. Just the two of us. The gunslinger felt a great and unholy thirst in some deep, unknown pit of his body. One no draught of water or wine would touch which trembled almost within reach of his fingers, and in some instinctual way he strove not to be corrupted, knowing in his colder mind that such strife was vain and always would be. In the end, there was only Ka. It was noon. He looked up, letting the cloudy, unsettled light. He looked up, letting the cloudy, unsettled daylight shine for the last time on the all-too-vulnerable son of his own righteousness. No one ever really pays for betrayal in silver, he thought. The price for any betrayal always comes due in flesh. Come with me or stay, the gunslinger said. The boy responded to this with a hard and humorless grin, his father's grin, had he but known it. And I'll be fine if I stay, he said. I'll find by myself here in the mountains. Someone will come and save me. They'll have cake and sandwiches, coffee and a thermos too. You say so? Come with me or stay, the gunslinger repeated, and felt something happen in his mind, an uncoupling. That was the moment at which the small figure before him ceased to be Jake and became only the boy, and personality to be moved and used. Something screamed in the wildy, in a windy stillness, and he and the boy both heard. The gunslinger began to climb, and after a moment Jake came after. Together they mantled, they mounted the tumbled rock beside the steely cold falls and stood where the man in black had stood before them. And together 
They entered where he had disappeared, and the darkness swallowed them. All right, so that is the reading of the entire third chapter, and now I want to talk about with you about this chapter. So we know that Roland has pretty much fallen in love with this boy, this wonderful boy from, from New York. And we can see, you know, in the way that he views the boy that he kind of relates to him, maybe sees himself as a father figure, um, and the boy as a son, or, or maybe sees himself in the boy. He sees Jake for who Jake is also as well. You know, he sees the makings of a fine man, and he has, you know, thought that Jake possesses deep still and conviction and, and bravery, and, and he does. You know, he's a really strong young man or, or child. And, you know, he's already contemplating what he's willing to do, Roland, to get his answers <clears throat> and to pursue the man in black. And so he's already starting to feel the the guilt, or I guess this heaviness, this burden of, you know, an upcoming betrayal. And I think that's really quite poignant. You know, it's if, if you were to compare and contrast that to an everyday thing, you know, it's like how many of us have maybe been in jobs and you knew somebody was going to be let go and, you know, you couldn't say anything. Or what if you had a friend and you knew, you know, their partner was not being truthful or honest or was cheating on them, you know, and, you know, you, you carry the guilt of knowledge. And so those are probably some kind of stabbing in the dark examples. But um, in this instance, Roland knows that the price for his answers, the price for what he is pursuing has to do with the boy and in a way that he is already, he's already starting to dread and feel awful about. So, but it's also against Roland's personality to back down from anything. So I, I think that this is a really dynamic chapter. I like the idea that they have crossed the desert together and then they had this little break at the um, at their campsite, you know, when they finally get to the foothills of the mountains, and now they're climbing the mountain together. But there's almost a tension in climbing the mountain that wasn't present when they were crossing the desert. Crossing the desert, you know, they they were almost they were very much together, and you know, getting to know one another. After speaking to the oracle, Roland sees, you know more how Jake may have to come into play into his plans and climbing the mountain is an altogether different type of experience you know it's not the heat killing you it's the upward climb into this gray uncertainness and I really like you know the visual of the hard granite you know everything seems really rigid uh, the setting is rigid there's thunder but they don't necessarily see the rain um, they climb through a cloud and you know, all this time, you know, Roland is and Jake are at this at this point starting to kind of tug of war a little bit. You know, there's a sense that Jake also is aware that in some way he is going to be used, and you know, it's it's um, 
it's kind of a hard read for me to read and a hard thing to contemplate, you know, because this is a child and one that is growing to love Roland and Roland does love Jake, but he's forcing himself, you know, to make choices. The Oracle said, well, you know, the only way you could save Jake is to leave, you know, stop, stop chasing the man in black. You could go live out your life, you know, in, in some of these towns where they still need gunslingers and, and Roland makes the choice that no, he can't do that. So, you know, it's pretty poignant. So to me, it's showing again, um, how horrific the gunslinger's drive is, you know, it just doesn't stop. But you're also seeing, um, with glimpses into Roland's past, you know, and Jake act, and, you know, does ask him a question about, you know, was there a war? And Roland says, even better, a revolution. We run every, we won every battle, but lost the war. So, you know, everything Roland knew has come and gone. And, you know, it's, it just seems like, you know, he has been very much a victim of the world moving on in his own right. You know, Roland, over the countless years, which we don't know how many years this has been. So it seems like the only thing left for Roland of his past is to follow this man in black who now we find was Martin. The Oracle says um, Martin is no more the man in black has eaten him. So maybe at some point the wizard Martin, this is a confirmation that this wizard from Roland's childhood or young days, you know, in... New Canaan is actually, you know, the man in black. So it's just kind of interesting how things from Roland's past keep popping up, like um, Sheb, the piano player. And we hear a little bit more about Susan, Susan Delgado. So we know that she's a horseman's daughter and was somebody that was pretty critical in Roland's youth. We don't know a lot about her now other than her name and that she was from a place called Mages. And he's had a nightmare where she warned him about Jake from a dream. And she's um, being burned, you know, at, at the stake. So we don't know what has brought her to that point or why that has happened. But in his dream, this is happening. And it's her, um, her voice that wakes him from that nightmare to go and rescue Jake from the Oracle. So I thought that was interesting. Not Allie, but Susan. So... So I thought that was, you know, kind of an interesting detail. So there is also some artwork in the book that was from the Oracle. And this one's actually a two-page illustration. And you kind of see what looks to be like a Stonehenge kind of building in the background. And there's like some willows and a little pond. And you see our gunslinger kind of sitting by the pond and again this painting has like his face painted in and it's very westerny and while I like the artwork I kind of wish it wasn't there because in my mind I already have an idea of what what I'm seeing you know in my mind for this particular character so I like the character of Jake very much I think he's you know a really cool kid I think he has a lot of issues <laughs> and I loved you know like when he smiles at at Roland when he says you know let's go back and Roland's like well stay or leave and he's like well yeah I could stay here and be fine and he's smiling his father smiles so you know Jake is 
in his moment there having a hard moment where he himself is kind of displaying I guess a, a cynical adultness so I thought that was interesting as Jake knows you know that something is going to happen He's, he says to him you're going to kill me he killed me he killed me first the first time and you're going to kill me this time and I think you know it so you know he's confronting the gunslinger and he's already seen you know he's he's afraid of the gunslinger but he loves him and he still goes on with him so it's almost it's you know again you know there's these biblical references and I keep thinking you know of the the sacrifice of Isaac and Abraham you know that that particular story and and we'll see what comes to play so this was the last of this chapter which was the oracle and the mountains and the title is actually pretty indicative of, you know, it's like almost two things happening. You have kind of Roland and Jake with this childhood relationship happening. And then after the Oracle happens, it's a much more grown-up story. Uh, Jake is much older or having to be much older because of what he is preparing for and what Roland is getting prepared to do. So... I also love that after all this time, you know, you have this whole book and you keep hearing about how Roland has been after the man in black, you know, forever. And all of a sudden he just runs into him, you know, all of a sudden they turn a corner and there he is. And, you know, he shoots bullets at him and none of them hit him. So, and it almost seems like there's a bit of magic there. And I thought that was interesting. So the next chapter is titled the slow mutants and we will be enjoying that next time so thank you for your listen to Seppa stories as we are enjoying this marvelous book and you know again I do not own the rights to the book or the characters within I'm simply sharing and hoping it's okay to read these if I'm asked to remove these um, readings I will do so but this is just such a marvelous story. It's it's a Western, but it's not. And you can't explain that. When you say Stephen King, you don't think Westerns, but it, it is absolutely marvelous. So I hope you're enjoying this as much as I'm enjoying spending time with you reading this. And we will see you next time on SEPA Stories. So thank you for listening. If you like this, give me a share. Um, visit my I have a Facebook page now, and I just built a Wix um, blog page. So as I'm updating, things will update everywhere there, too. And, you know, give me a share. I'm on Spotify. You can find us on Apple iTunes if you want to continue to hear more podcasts. And one of the things that I'm looking at doing, too, for my fan fiction writers that I very much love Yes, it's a dirty, dirty, guilty secret thing. I love fan fiction. But I will be reading with author's permission because it's a little easier to get in touch with them. Uh, selected writings and short stories if you're at all interested in fan fiction pieces. So we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. Thank you for sharing your time with me, and we'll see you in our next reading. So have a great day, whatever you're doing, or a great evening, and I hope you've enjoyed today. Take care. Bye.